the, uh, that passage, 52 verses 7 to 10, is a passage about the Gospel. What is the Gospel? It's the all-important question for us as Christians, isn't it? We need to know what the Gospel is. If you're a believer in Jesus, then you do know what the Gospel is because you've believed the Gospel. But sometimes it's hard for us to think how do we articulate that. Uh, And in in this week ahead, uh, those who will be uh, here through the week uh, will be uh, depending on God to give them the right words to speak to share the Gospel with people. Sometimes there is as many answers to that question, what is the Gospel, than there are people you ask. But in 52 verse 7, we see the definition, the kernel of the Gospel message. Your God reigns. Beautiful feet on the mountain bringing a Gospel message and the message is, your God reigns. The Gospel is first and foremost about God, not about us. It's the declaration that the Lord is the King over all the earth and the implication of his reign for all those who know him and love him. If he is the King, if your God reigns, then he's able to comfort, he's able to redeem, he's able to save his people. Now we see this in Jesus' words when he first begins his ministry. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So here Jesus is proclaiming the gospel He's announcing the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning the kingdom of God is here, it's arrived. It's just another way of saying, your God reigns. Now the accounts of Jesus in the scriptures are called Gospels because their aim is to show that Jesus is the one through whom the Father has brought his reign to bear on the world. The kingdom of God has come in him. So John says in his Gospel, John 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See how there's a twofold aim here in John's presentation of Jesus. Firstly, it's so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's a statement, obviously, that it's more about Jesus than it is about us. It's not so much the action of believing, but the action, action of believing brings honour to him. That's the Father's supreme goal in creation. That every creature in heaven and on earth will bow the knee and will declare Jesus is Lord. We exist for his glory. So often we think he exists for our glory. Well, the 
A gospel announcement is first and foremost the kingdom of God has been established in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and so give all glory to him. We could call this the objective truth of the gospel. It's true whether you believe it or not. But secondly, see how John says he wrote his gospel so that the benefits of Jesus' reign as Christ and Son of God would flow to us so that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the personal truth of the gospel. The reign of God actually impacts our lives. We actually enjoy and experience the benefits of his good reign as we are citizens in the kingdom and children in the household. Now see what this means for the people, the Jews, as they were in exile. It means the return of the Lord to Zion. See, the good news, your God reigns, has implications. It means because he reigns, he's returning to Jerusalem. This is going to impact your lives. It leads to the waste places of Jerusalem bursting into song. Now this is a beautiful picture here. It's a picture of the Lord going from Israel, his land, he's going across the mountains to Babylon where his people are captives and he's gathering the exiles and then he returns and he brings them back with him. And there's pictures in the prophets of the mountains being levelled and the valleys being filled up and a highway being built between Babylon and Jerusalem. But it's not so much a rescue, it's a redemption. See, he has redeemed Israel. Remember the previous servant song last week in chapter 50, how the Lord described his people as people sold into slavery. Well, redemption is the action of setting a slave free by paying the price, by cancelling their debt. It's an action that comes at great cost to the Redeemer. The Redeemer has to give up something. And even there are accounts in the ancient world of a person redeeming a family member from slavery by actually stepping into their place and taking on their burden of slavery so that their relative could go free. So it's costly to the redeemer but it's free for the one who's being redeemed. And that's what we'll see in this servant song. The enormous cost paid by God in Christ to redeem us. So because this gospel that their God reigns was true, they enjoyed the benefits of his reign. They returned to the land. But along with this gospel announcement and its benefits then comes a call. Their redemption means they now belong to a new master. They no longer have anything to do 
with their Babylonian masters. So they must act in response to this call. They must stand up, leave everything behind and begin the walk back to Jerusalem. They leave what is past and they step forward as a cleansed, holy, purified people into what lies ahead for them. But then see how the Lord enables them to make this response in in verse 12. They won't be going in haste or in flight. In other words, it won't be like when they were coming out of Egypt with the Egyptian armies in hot pursuit. In the Exodus, the Lord went before them, leading them in a pillar of fire and cloud. But here, he goes before them, but he also is there as their rear guard. So their departure from Babylon will be an easy departure. They're not escaping slaves. They're redeemed slaves, they're citizens. They actually returned with the blessing of the king, the Persian king of Babylon. So what a wonderful picture of the gospel, the announcement, your God reigns, he's established his kingdom and he's going to bring you back to be his people and so respond to that. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, what did he say there next? Repent and believe, answer the call and come to me. Well after that introduction then we come to the servant song. But we needed this background in order to grasp what's being said about the servant in the following verses. I've been saying a lot about the sovereignty of God in this series and how this means he rules over every corner and every creature in creation, making sure that everything works together to accomplish his good purposes. He reigns over both good and evil, over comfort and suffering, the wise and the powerful, the small and the humble. Nothing happens, not a sparrow falling from the sky, not a hair falling from your head, not even you believing in Jesus. None of that happens that's outside of the Father's gracious sovereign will. But we need to see that the way that God exercises his sovereignty over all things is by the use of means. He uses instruments. We need to realise that that's how he works so that we're not tempted to downgrade his sovereignty based on how we observe things happening in this world. So verses 7 to 12 of 52 paints this picture of the Lord himself doing this, bearing his holy arm, bringing his people home himself. But then the servant song shows us how he uses a means to make this happen and his means is a human agent. Because of our limited view, as creatures we often only see the horizontal perspective. We see human beings, those in power and authority, acting in the world and we, we tend to think that they're acting independently of God. 
and that God occasionally might intervene to kind of change the direction of it. But what do the scriptures tell us? All authority has been instituted by God. And the message in Isaiah is that he's using these rulers, he's using these nations to bring about his sovereign purpose. So his use of means doesn't diminish his sovereignty. In fact, it actually highlights it. Think of this picture. When I'm working in my garden and I need to dig a hole to plant a shrub, there are two ways I can go about it. I can get down and use my hands to dig. Or I can get my shovel and use that to dig. Either way, it's me who digs the hole. The shovel can take no credit for the hole because it's actually made for that purpose and it can't do anything unless it becomes the tool in my hands. In fact, by using the shovel, I'm displaying something of the creativity and the dignity of human beings made in God's image. We're able to fashion something that is so perfectly suited for the job. Well, similarly, God displays his glory and his sovereignty as he uses various means to accomplish his purposes. And in this, uh, the servant songs, we see that uh, above all means that he uses, all instruments he uses, it's the person of the servant. This portrait of the servant in chapter 52 and 53 is the, the fullest, the most comprehensive of the four songs. His character and his suffering aren't merely hinted at or simply stated, but they're described in detail. And not only, not only is the fact of his suffering spoken of, but the meaning of it, what it is that his suffering actually accomplishes. This song has been described as the clearest presentation of penal substitutionary atonement in the Bible. That phrase means one who has taken my place to take the penalty that I deserve. It's been suggested that it's clearer here than it is even in the New Testament passages. One Bible scholar once said, it looks as if it had been written beneath the cross of Golgotha. Martin Luther once said that if there's any passage in the Bible that a Christian should memorise, it's this one. Nearly every line of this song is either directly quoted or strongly alluded to in the New Testament. It's used by the New Testament writers to to verify the identity of Jesus as the suffering servant. It's quoted as motivation for us both to get out and to be those people with beautiful feet as we proclaim the gospel and for us to stand firm under unjust suffering as we look to Jesus who willingly suffered for us. The more you read this passage, 
alongside the Gospels, the more it seems like Jesus took the book of Isaiah, not just these songs, but the whole book as the script for his whole life and ministry and death and resurrection. Remember remember how we saw at the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth, he read from the scroll of Isaiah and he claimed to be the fulfilment of that passage. And then at the end of his ministry, as he prepared to uh, go to the garden on the night of his arrest, he says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfilment. That's 53 verse 12 there. Now modern Jews claim that Christians have misunderstood this chapter, that it's simply a passage about the suffering of the nation of Israel. But we have Jesus' own words here that it speaks of him. The first part of this song is like an introduction or like an overture to the song. And what it presents to us is this enigma of the suffering servant. It's actually structured as a chiasm. If you remember what a a chiasm is, Hopefully that's readable there. It's uh, a passage that's structured uh, where the centre is the focus and the beginning and the end parallel each other. So first uh, we see in verse uh, 13 three descriptions of the servant as a king who is greater than all the kings of the earth. We're told he will act wisely Now some translations, maybe your translations, have this as he will prosper because the word means both. It's a prospering that comes from good and wise decisions. It's the prospering that the book of Proverbs speaks of. If you exercise wisdom, the result will be a good result. So he's a ruler who brings about prosperity for his people because he's good and just and wise in his rule. We're told he will be high and lifted up, which refers to uh, being given honour among human beings. And it's probably the phrase that Jesus had in his mind when he said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And we know that there when he talks about being lifted up, it's a reference to the cross. And thirdly, he will be exalted, which is an interesting word to use because it's a word that's used elsewhere in the Bible to speak of God or of the heavens And when it's used in reference to human beings, it means proud or haughty because they're claiming a greatness that only God has. So this servant, while being a man, will be rightfully described as exalted because he will be both God and man. 
So 14a, the next there in green, tells us he will be this astonishing figure. He will stand out from all the kings of the earth. And not only because of his character, but because of what he'll suffer in the centre part there, 14b. This suffering is the centre of this chiasm. And it's a suffering that's so unimaginable. It's like nothing anyone has ever suffered. A suffering that seems to strip him of his humanity. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 15a then, the next one in green, repeats the idea of 14a but in a bit more detail. So it's about astonishment but it explains how his greatness and his suffering work together in an astonishing way. We're told, so shall he sprinkle many nations. In other words, by his suffering he will sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? Well, this word sprinkle, apart from two places where it describes the spattered blood of someone who's come under God's judgement, it's only ever used to describe the sprinkling of the three liquids that were used in the tabernacle. The blood of the sacrifice, the water of cleansing and the oil of anointing. So the servant's suffering of one will be of one under God's judgment. There will be spattered blood, shed blood. But it will be his suffering that will accomplish this threefold result. Sprinkled blood atoning for sin. Sprinkled water removing uncleanness and sprinkled oil that anoints and sanctifies for God's service. That one short sentence, he will sprinkle many nations, it's only four words in the original language, contains so much. It's a summary of how Jesus will, by his death, bring the fulfilment of the promise made to Abraham that God's blessing will go to every nation on earth. And so not only will many be astonished at him, but kings will shut their mouths because of him. Their presumptuous pride in their own power is shown to be empty and vain in the face of this one whose majesty and glory is displayed in humility and suffering. The overture then finishes with a fourfold statement. Those who were told, who were not told, will see. Those who have not heard will understand. And then two questions. Who has believed what he's heard? And to whom has the arm, meaning this work of the Lord, to whom has this been revealed? This is the enigma of the suffering servant. He's both God's instrument and God in person. He displays his greatness through 
humility. He accomplishes salvation through suffering, but this is something that can't be devised by human minds. It can only be known and believed as God opens up the wonder of it and reveals it to us and applies it to our hearts and our lives. Now, both 52 verse 15b and 53 verse 1 are quoted in the New Testament in the context of the Gospel being proclaimed. See how Paul quotes it as a reason for taking the Gospel to the Gentiles. He says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the Gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. He says that's the promise of the Gospel in Isaiah 52. But in more sombre tones, he quotes 53 verse 1 as he's grieving over the fact that his own people have rejected the Messiah. Romans 10, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, you might recognise this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? We're called to proclaim this gospel of the suffering servant, of the crucified, risen Jesus, in the confidence that through it God will open the eyes of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and enable them to grab hold of his grace and mercy in Jesus, but also with this sense of solemnity. Many who hear the gospel will reject it. They'll see it as foolishness. They'll be offended by it. And we can hold the two together, a confidence that people will hear and believe and the reality that many will hear and will not believe. We can hold them together because we know that God is sovereign. It's all his work. So we can't ever become triumphalistic or proud or think that we'll always be successful if we just do the things the right way. Then we'll suddenly become a successful, uh, flourishing, growing, evangelistic church with people flocking to hear the gospel. We We don't need to worry about trying to make that happen because it's God is the one who brings people and opens their eyes. But also we must not become discouraged when it seems that not much is happening in our ministry. The Lord is doing what he chooses to do through us who are weak clay vessels but we contain within ourselves this priceless treasure of the Gospel. So this overture and the way it's structured gives us a picture of this one who's greatly exalted and then descends to this place of humility but then through his humility is raised up again to a place of exaltation. And the main part of the song from 
verses 2 to 12, follows this same pattern. Now, as I said earlier, um, every, nearly every part of this song is directly quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. We've already seen a couple of examples of that. But rather than me going through and analysing every line of this song, we're going to hear the song read again, but alongside the various ways that the New Testament quotes or alludes to this song to identify this suffering servant with Jesus and to apply it to our lives. So we'll 